Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Hi, welcome to Unsheathed number 22. We're here in our uh, renovated, undisclosed location. I'm Kyle Gold. I am Cam Hirosaki. And we are pleased to be bringing you a, a podcast episode of on Christmas week. Yes. Speaking of which, uh, my uh, podcast shenanigans this week are brought to you by a uh, lovely little sort of fortified wine uh, called uh, the Angelica from uh, Visa Tui, which is actually one of my favorite uh, California vineyards that I try to go to at least once a year, which is uh, this actual bottle is left over from when I brought to uh, Kyle's own Christmas party, which was uh, quite the shindig. It was, although there was a lot less drunkenness this this uh, year, I, I recall. I was disappointingly sober the whole time. <laughs> Is that disappointingly or disappointedly? It depends on where you're looking at it from, I suppose. I think you might have been disappointedly sober, but from other people's perspectives, you were disappointingly sober. And that's uh, a little bit of you know writerly advice for you people there about using your uh, your Ad- different adjectives adverbs. and adverbs. No, wait, that's... That's an adverb modifying an adjective? Yes. Okay. That's correct. Because it ends in L-Y. Right. Uh, so we hope you're all uh, set to have a Merry Christmas, or if you're listening to this afterwards, that you've had one. Uh, we are looking forward to the holidays ourselves. Kit and I are going to have a long weekend. Also, if you celebrate Taylor Swift's uh, country Hanukkah, that's legitimate as well. Uh-huh. And... Uh, don't forget that the day after Christmas is Foxing Day. That's my favorite holiday. I wish we celebrated it in America. <laughs> of course, for Kit, every day is Foxing Day. Uh, <laughs> my brain just went all... Actually, it didn't go all sorts of places. It just went one place. And I'm pretty sure that folks can guess what that place was. <laughs> ah, So anyway, um, uh, I also like the holidays from sort of a personal angle because things slow down a bit. And a lot of times... You know, I like to set up a routine wherein I have time to write in and amongst all the other little things that I do during the week. Um, you know, I go to the gym, I work out, I have a full-time job, uh, I record a podcast, I meet with some writing groups, I go out with friends and stuff, and I kind of have to wedge my writing time in there. The holidays are kind of nice because we have, you know, Christmas, obviously, we're going to, you know, be opening presents, we're going to have a dinner and all that kind of stuff, probably go out and see some movies, but there's probably going to be a lot of downtime, and I'm uh, looking forward to, if not Christmas Day, then maybe during the weekend, uh, having a little bit of time to wrap up some editing I'm working on for the uh, Cupcakes project that we've talked about online and I think on the podcast. Uh, if you haven't, uh, the the general uh, notion is that uh, Fur Planet is going to be publishing a line of uh, printed novellas, which are going to be done uh, by uh, our very own Kyle uh, by Rikoshi and by Foosball. And we're very excited to have, uh, well, I'm excited to be working with those other authors because I hold them in very high esteem. Um, mine is one of the first ones to come out, uh, basically. Well, it, it is the first one. It's also one of the first ones by definition, but yours is more accurate. Um, and uh, I'm trying to get it kind of whipped into shape by the end of the calendar year. So that uh, um, so that we can 
get it out to Fur Planet by the middle of uh, January and have it ready to come out at Fur Fiesta. And I've gotten uh, Kiovi to do the artwork for it. She's given me some sketches, and I'm very excited about the whole thing. I'm about, uh, I would say about a third of the way through right now. So Through the editing? Through the editing, yeah. I'm, it's it's fun going back, and I, I talk a lot about the editing process whenever I'm doing it with any of my books, but it's fun to go back and kind of remember what idea I was trying to get across and say, you know, sometimes I'll just write sentences down because they sound good, and it kind of is close to what I wanted to say, but then I look at it again and, you know, I think, oh, that really doesn't make much sense. I could just take that whole thing out. Or there's a little digression and, you know, I, I fill, I need to fill space because they need to get from one place to the other. And I think, oh, I could do that more efficiently. And it's, it's really cool to be going, be able to go back into a story and like tighten up and make it much more reflective of the idea that I had in my head when I started writing it. Yeah, I know how that feels too. Um, I know that there have been a few times where I've mentioned, you know, having like core ideas with stories and having like the image of that change throughout the course of writing it. And I know I mentioned it at at least one point, the whole concept of, you know, once you have the story on paper the first time, that's when all the rewriting can be done much more directly. And you really do notice a difference. And it feels different writing it. Mm Mm-hmm. Once you already have an initial draft under the, out of the way. And the big challenge is, you know, when you're doing your first draft, the possibilities are, are completely wide open. It's just endless, you know, infinite possibilities. When you're going back to do a rewrite, there's a tendency to get yourself locked into what you've already got on paper. To say, well, I've written this scene. I can't change it now. I can just refine the scene. And you have to be comfortable with saying... I think the story would be better served if that scene was gone or if I added a scene where they did this or, you know, what have you. I actually have an excision folder within my uh, writing folder. Very scholarly. Laptop where it's, you know, all like scenes and parts that I cut out of things and I put them into different files. Not necessarily with the intent to ever use them again, but just so that they're not lost, just so I still have them. Right. So I don't feel as bad about, oh, I took this out. Well, it's like, well, it still exists. Yeah, and I, I keep um, I keep files of with the story title and then unused. And whenever I take something out of a document, I always just drop it into that file. So sometimes I'll print outtakes from books here and there, and that's usually where those come from. Yeah. I'm in the process of editing a longer story that I've mentioned a few times now where I got through a first draft and I don't know quite what I was going for in the first draft, but I have a better idea now. And it turns out I have a much longer and more complex story of my pause than I was originally planning on. And it's, uh, it's actually, I think daunting and imposing enough that I think I'm going to have to write another short story first just to sort of get it out of my head. And so I can reapproach it with a, uh, a fresh, energized brain, because at, right now it's just kind of too scary for me to look at. <laughs> um, uh, one more item before we get to the questions, which actually is uh, this week are, we're catching up on some old questions that are a little bit relevant to the process of editing and publication and artwork specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a quick note, I got some really astounding news last week. Um, the There's a editor by the name of Elisa Roll, and she, well, I'm sorry, reviewer, not an editor, and we, Sofa Wolf sent her Waterways a couple years ago, and then she really liked it, 
and so she requested more uh, more books from him, and we sent her out of position, and she liked that one even a little bit more, and she decided this year to start uh, doing giving out some awards for the titles that she reviews because she reviews a lot of gay fiction, mostly romance, but not entirely, and she reviews hundreds of books a year. Uh, I mean, there's like a new review four or five a week, I think, on her live journal. Yeah. I can't imagine having that much time to read. I'm kind of jealous. Yeah. Um, I don't know how she does it, but uh, she actually went about this in a really professional way. She got a bunch of readers to serve as judges, and then she put all the books up on her site. So the judges picked a pool of books, and then she put all the books up on her site and let the readers choose the most popular ones in a bunch of categories. And those popular ones went in with the judges' choices into a final round where she had 60 judges from around the world reading, uh, I think it was like 100-some books in the final round. And each of the judges rated them on a, a system that I'm assuming she set up and gave to them. And they came up with, so she came up then with the top books out of the 500 and whatever that were originally placed in. And uh, as it turns out, we found out um, about a week, a week and a half ago that Out of Position was judged tied for number one out of a bunch of mainstream gay books. Yeah, just to you know, stress, this isn't like gay furry stuff. This is just gay, you know, fiction. Yeah, and it's not like, you know, furries swarmed the polls and all voted for their one favorite book. Because I, mean, I don't even think that furries in the on the whole, were aware of this being judged. Well, they did actually... I mean, the way it got in is they did vote for it in Best Fantasy, and so that's how it got into the judging round, is it right. got more votes in the fantasy category. But, but it's still the judges who had to go and give right. it that honor. It was judged is, by three yeah. different people who... I mean, you go look on the best... It also won Best Fantasy Novel, and when you go look on that site, um, she has excerpts from the judges' comments, and they all said very nice things about it, including one judge who said, paraphrasing, I didn't think I would be able to get into the whole furry thing, but the book drew me into it. Yeah. So all those people out there who, you know, sort of will claim that, oh, the mainstream doesn't and won't and can't understand furries and we're always going to be this sort of like weird like oppression we have to put up with that. Apparently that's BS. And and that I think is one of the coolest things to come out of it. Um, Bucktown Tiger said something on Twitter about it where he said, this is really an inspiration to those of us in the creative fields in furry because it shows us that there's a possibility that our work can be appreciated outside of the fandom. Yeah. And I'm totally behind that. I mean, don't, it doesn't mean you have to shove things in people's faces and say, you know, admire it because furry is better than anything else, but put it out in the mainstream. Let it be judged on its own merits. I mean, I've heard some of Bucktown's music and that stands with a lot of what I would hear on the radio. So I don't understand that. There's no reason why he couldn't be um, and I mean, received. Yeah, I mean, there's been furry stuff that's always had mainstream appeal. People don't call it furry because the mainstream doesn't have this fandom to identify with it. But the fact that it's got, you know, animal people, critter characters doesn't relegate it to only being appreciated by us, not by any stretch. No, although someone brought this up on the Live Journal, too, where they were talking about Redwall and... Uh, a lot of the Disney movies. Mm -hmm. And I would draw a line because it's much, much rarer to see anthropomorphic animal characters, like humanoid, uh, anthropomorphic 
can kind of, can also mean like you know the rescuers and right. where animals are kind of mostly animals, but I'm talking more like Disney's Robin Hood, which is really rare. And mm-hmm. when you think about it, anytime people want to give an example of what the characters in the fandom are like, nine times out of ten they'll point to well, think about Disney's Robin Hood. Yeah, it's because there's so few examples of that out in the mainstream. Redwall is animals. Right. Watership Down is animals. You know. Well, Redwall, they at least wear clothes and talk and like have like dinner utensils. It's true. Watership but, Down, they're just like animal animals. Well, right, right. I mean, Redwall, they have, and again, I'm not super familiar with the Redwall books, but I think they have the predator-prey relationship kind of intact from they do. the natural world, and, and the size differences are all the same, too. That's true. And they also play up the species stereotypes a bit too strongly, I think, personally, but... Which is also a problem in furry, but those stereotypes are a little different, and we've talked about that in another episode. But if, so if, I think if, when if, people, if. I think when people say, you know, oh, the mainstream doesn't like furry stuff, and we say there's an aversion to anthropomorphic stuff, it's not, you know, I'm writing a book about a bunch of foxes that flee their home because it's being torn up by bulldozers and they have a little culture and they sip tea in the afternoons and all that and they eat mice and run away from owls and stuff it's more like you know the you know to be honest the out of position world where there's no humans and it's just animals taking the place of humans in that world because i think a lot of people have much more difficulty wrapping their heads around that than they do around well it's an animal world where it's like wind in the willows where animals sort of mirror human society but in their own context. Right. But I mean, as furry fans, we already know how to wrap our heads around that. So, Well, that's true. The yeah. point being, the right kind of work can also do that out in the mainstream. Yes. And I know and I've apparently seen... your, your work is that kind of work, so congratulations. Which, thank you. I'm, it was, it's extremely flattering. The more, I, the more I think about it, the more unreal it all seems. But um, I'm very proud of you. As a cool. fellow writer and your fellow podcaster, I'm very proud of you. Cool. Thank you. Uh, so let's get uh, let's get to some questions. This one uh, actually came to us about uh, over a month ago now, um, and we apologize for the delay, but there really wasn't a time to read it before then, and we had some older questions that we had to take care of. But uh, this is from Storm Kitty, and uh, I believe it's a he. I'm gonna I believe so. I'm gonna guess because you know you have about a what seventy eighty percent chance of being right if you just guess he in the furry fandom and, and if we're wrong we apologize right the or kitty, kyle apologizes because he's the one guessing the kitty only the kitty is the part that makes me pause because i think half the females in the furry fandom are kitties of some sort but yeah but most of the male felines i know refer to themselves as kitties too but mm. they're all twinky little faggots so there's something in that so storm kitty whom kam hirosaki says is a twinky little faggot no, that's says not what i meant hi I began listening to Unsheathed about a week ago and caught up all 14 of the currently available episodes. And hopefully you've caught up with the next uh, eight. I have this 50,000-word story that's mostly male-female erotica with significant BDSM and sex slavery themes. I've received some very positive feedback about it, and lately I've been thinking about getting published in a Dead Tree edition. Although it's unlikely I'd take down the online edition, I'd probably write some additional stories using the same characters and setting to include in the print edition, at least some of which I would not make available online. My question is, what can you suggest I do about artwork for the print edition? I realize a nice cover image can help sales, but I'm guessing a full-color front cover image of the quality I would like, someone on par with Blotch, Heather Bruton, or Casey Miyagami, 
would cost upwards of $100, and would go up from there if I had them produce some inked interior illustrations as well. I'm concerned that the artwork could end up costing more than I'd ever make back from sales of the book. What advice do you have in the matter? Also, do you have any suggestions on which publishers for the furry fandom I should talk to? So yeah, for for some of those artists you mentioned, the upwards of a thousand or upwards of a hundred dollars, emphasis on the upwards there. Yeah, but uh, I mean, if you think about it, first of all, um, I know Heather's usually pretty good and professional, but I don't know what her availability is to do commissions. She, she has a very long queue; it's about a, a year long. Yeah, um, I don't know about Casey Miyagami. Uh, I know Blotch generally doesn't take commissions either. Right. But the question isn't so much about commissions, it's about artwork for publications. And now there's two things to consider here. Are you talking about getting a publisher to publish it or are you self-publishing? If you're self-publishing, then yeah, you're going to have to front this all yourself. And it's going to be up to you to gauge, okay, how much money can I afford for my art? And you know, how much do I expect to make on the project? If you're having a publisher go and do it, then it's false to the publisher to get that for you yeah in general um when i've worked with publishers it kind of goes like if if the author has connections with an artist like i know with um with the cupcakes that we were talking about um foosball has is friends with an artist who's done some work with him before whose work is really good and uh he thinks he'd be able to get him to uh do the art for his story uh I'd met Kiovi and talked to her about doing the art for my book. So, you know, we worked that out and I paid her as if it were a commission. Um, but generally, if, you know, I would I would gauge interest from a publisher first. Right. And the um, the for the publisher I would talk to for a 53,000 word, which is a really short novel. Um, it sounds like you'd write a little more for it. So you'd... If you get it up in the 75,000 word range, that's pretty good for a short novel. Yeah. Um, I would say really Fur Planet. Yeah, that was going to be my recommendation as well. And I know uh, Fuzzwolf over there has some artists that he keeps connections with. Right. And generally, you and he could work out what the payment schedule would be where, you know, I'm not sure how he would do that because, like yeah. I said, we're doing the cupcakes through Fur Planet, but we're taking care of all the artwork ourselves. Yeah, and I haven't actually done anything personally through Fur Planet. I, I have some stuff that was put up by Bad Dog Books, which Fur Planet distributes, but that didn't have artwork in it. So. Right. But, yeah, I would say, I mean, Fuzzle's really good about getting furry stuff out there. Yeah. And he has connections with some artists, so if you don't have any connections or you don't have a, an artist to publish, then... You know, he'll be able to see what he can do. And um, yeah. I think when I was initially talking to him, he was talking about maybe, you know, he would front the money for the artwork and take the expense out of the profits from the book. Right. And so, like, yeah, my recommendation on that is if there is an artist that you want to do the art, you know, talk to the publisher and say, hey, could you get in touch with this artist for me and right. see if they will do this art for a printed publication? Because for a lot of artists, and in fact, I'd say most artists, Having a publisher saying, "Hey, would you like to, you know, provide us art for a, you know, something we're going to publish," is different than, "Hey, can I give you money to draw my character?" Right, and it's not necessarily that it'll be any cheaper. And I, I, I certainly don't recommend you go to artists and say, "Hey, you should do this for cheap because it'll be published," because that's sleazy and artists hate it. Yeah, and, I, I would too. Um, do the same work, but I want to pay you less. But 
what they might do is say, well, I know we're working with a publisher. I know Fur Planet goes around to these conventions, so I'll bump it up on my commission list. I'll regard it as professional work rather than, you know, a fan commission can wait a couple weeks or a month. But, or, or longer. Or, uh, yes. <laughs> we, I'm sure we've all waited longer for commissions. Um, so, yeah, I would I would contact Fur Planet. Um, I know Sofawolf is preparing novel submission guidelines, but um, so you might want to keep an eye out for them. Um, I don't know what their time frame is, but um, those those are basically the two publishers that do books that I'm aware of in the fandom. Yeah, and for longer works, I mean, I you know we we've mentioned Fuzzwolf because we we have been talking to him, and we know that this is the sort of thing that he may possibly be open to. As a general rule, though, just sort of showing up at a publisher and saying. Hey, I wrote a novel. Will you publish it? Like that's kind of not the best way to go about things because there's a big time and you know effort commitment to that. And if you're not a known quantity, they're probably going to err on the side of like, no, sorry, we're not doing this. Right, and I mean, when we say get in touch, you should present your novel as professionally as possible. I mean, the way that I would do it is send a sample of the story, proofread it, make sure it is your absolute best foot forward. Yeah. Don't send them the thing and say, well, here's what I have now. I will polish it later before publication. Yeah. Polish it before you send yeah, like, it. Oh, I know that it's not perfect and it's not edited. It's like, well, why isn't it edited? You just come across as lazy. Exactly. And in addition to that, you also want to present your business case because these publishers are running a business. Yeah. Um, Wolf is slightly different from Sofawolf. Sofawolf makes a bigger investment in the books, and so they really need to know that there's a market that they're going to be able to sell however many they make in the print run. Um, I know yeah. Fuzz does some copies ahead of time, but they're much yeah. more of a print-on-demand. Fur Planet can afford to be a bit more experimental because of their business model. Right. And so, But in any case, what you're going to want to say is, um, you know, this is the kind of feedback I've received... Uh, this is the kind of market my book is appealing to. This is the number of sales that I think I can get from it. You know, this is what I expect, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, just basically explain why a publisher should put effort into publishing your book. Because these guys are furries and they have an interest in seeing furry fiction sold and they will help you out, but they're not going to generate demand for your book. That is largely up to you. Yeah, I mean, you are the commodity... And, you know, it's like you said, you got to make a business case for it. Exactly. And, you know, you know, the publisher isn't going to expect, you know, you're not going there to drop a bunch of work on them. Right. And, you know, honestly, if you, if, if things don't work out with the publishers, self-publishing is not a bad way to go. No, I know uh, a bunch of authors who do that and pretty successfully. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to another related question. This one is from our stubby leg friend, Zia McCorkey. And he writes, I have two questions for the esteemed pair of Wright and Fox and Otter. I hope you can help. And, we try uh, our best. We do try our best. And I hope you haven't been, hope you weren't in need of a fast response to this. Um, but again, we apologize for that. Um, so let I'll, I'll read the questions separately and we'll talk about them separately so that we don't lose track of. Sure. Um, First, I have recently written a book. 
Congratulations. Congratulations. Yay. I finished the editorial work on it during the recent holiday. It is getting published and will soon enter the fandom under the flag of Fur Planet. So there you go. Yeah. Proof positive. I'm very excited, as well you should be. I'm going to stop narrating his letter now. I have ideas for a sequel I want to write. More accurately, two sequels. Neither one have much to do with the other or the first book, but they're all set in the same world about different people. You've both talked about how you have to get stories out or else. I'm in a similar boat. I've been getting all these ideas for both stories that I want to tell. I know I now have to concentrate on one of them and start actually writing it. My problem is that I'm worried that as I write one book, the other story will die from neglect. I really love both ideas, but I know when it comes to my writing that my attention span is finite. Do you have any ideas for what I should do? If you're worried about the ideas going away, find some way to record them in a more permanent, less ephemeral form so that you can go back to them later. Keep a notebook. Take notes. Leave notes on your computer. You know, jot down outlines. Do something so that you can at least give either the story some shape or a structure. Or if you can't get that much out, at least put down like the little fragments of ideas that you have that might be neat to follow up on. If you still need to follow up on them, you can follow up on them later. And as long as you have them recorded somewhere so that you don't forget them, that should be a good way to help you with that. Um, buy a little dry erase board or buy a cork board or something and put it up in your room or wherever you sit near the computer to do your writing and thinking and um, write notes about the story. And, you know, every time you think of something new about it while you're writing the other one, write little notes about the second one. And, you know, yeah. keep those notes, keep it in a notebook, keep it on a corkboard on your wall, keep it up on a dry erase board, something like that, whatever. Um, but, I mean, the other thing that I would say is keep the notes about the story, but if you can only write one story at a time, pick the one that moves you more. Yeah. And this is a big thing that I know I still struggle with. But the ideas will come back. If you're worried that this other story idea is going to go away, it might go away. But I guarantee you, guarantee you, 100% guarantee you, that by the time you finish writing this first idea, you'll have more. Yeah. And they will excite, and if they don't excite you as much as the previous idea, as the second one you have now that you're going to put aside you will remember that second one because it excites you more than anything else you've thought of since. Yeah. Um, the I've had ideas for stories, and I know it's emotionally it's really hard to let go of them. It's really hard to say, you know, man, I had this great idea, and it's I can't remember what I was going to do with it, and it's so frustrating, and, you know, it's like, it's like that old cliche T-shirt says, if you love something, let it go, and if it doesn't come back, it was never meant to be. You, right. you stole you stole my line, if which do, if I was stealing from countless other people. If it doesn't come back, then you're a failure. <laughs> if it doesn't oh. come back, then use somebody else's mate to cheat on it. I don't know. That, that's don't a Hirosaki that, story right there, ladies and I don't even know gentlemen. what that means. But, uh, but no, seriously. Uh, the power of being a writer, this is, you know, now I'm cribbing from the end of the Stephen Donaldson, Thomas Covenant trilogy, but... The power of being a writer is that you can always come up with another idea. You get people get writer's block, people get you know some people claim to get have ideas dry up on them. 
but you have to you have to let yourself uh let the ideas go because the other thing that might happen with this is you cling on to this second idea by the time you finish the first book the second idea doesn't excite you anymore but you feel obliged to write it because you've held on yeah. to it for this long. Never and, feel obliged to do anything for something that doesn't exist. And then, exactly. And then you're writing this idea, and it gets dreary, and it becomes work. Wow, that was some zen shit I just spouted. It was. Yeah. You need more port. I'm good. So, that's what we. That's what you should do. Pick one of the ideas, write down some notes on the other one, and if it still excites you when you finish the first one, go ahead and write it. But I guarantee you will have another idea by the time you're done your first book. Yeah, and well, if he's apparently already done with his well, first, and now he's moving on to his second. First of the of these yeah, two ideas. So yeah, but, but that's... And congratulations about your book. We will uh, look forward to seeing it. Yep. Secondly, Zia continues, for my soon-to-be-published book, I plan to have illustrations and cover art. I know both of you have books with stellar art inside that really helps capture the mood of your work. I've found a great artist. I'm overjoyed every time he sends me the work he's done. The problem is that he's very new to the illustration of books business, and so am I, and he's been very uncomfortable talking about remuneration. I want to pay him a fair wage for the excellent work he's doing. He's nearly finished the job, and by next month we'll have wrapped things up. That's this month now. What do you, the experienced gurus of furry publishing, consider to be a fair pay for art and books? Well, I mean, that sort of comes back to what we already discussed, which that's something that the publisher should hash out, or if it doesn't come to the publisher, it should come to you and... You know, negotiate that with the artist. There's no, like, set rate that, oh, you should get paid this much for doing an illustration for this type of thing. There's, like, I guarantee you the artist doesn't have this, you know, you know, cheat sheet that they carry around with them that says, you know, if it's less than this, say no. Yeah, but it, he's, he, he says the artist is a little reluctant to talk about money. And I think it's, it's really interesting in the furry fandom because artists do work for pay yeah. all the time. So essentially what you're doing is commissioning art from him to use in publication. Yes. And at that point, it's up to him to decide whether the fact that it's going to be in a book is worth a discount or, yeah. if, or if he wants to be you know, paid with royalties from the book because his art's helping sales or if he just wants to sell you the art at a flat rate and license you to print it in the books or you know whatever. But that's... Yeah. That's really his decision. Yeah. It's the artist's call what's a fair price or what they want. Right. So I understand it's it's complicated too when you're friends and it sounds like you're friends with uh with this artist because otherwise he wouldn't be that uncomfortable discussing money matters. But really you can make it easier by saying this is a business. I'm asking for work from you for pay. Uh -huh. So you know, what would you charge for a commission? You might, you know, maybe it's worth a discount if he's doing like 10 interiors and he says, you know, because I really love the characters and I'm doing a bunch of art for you instead of charging you X for, you know, instead of charging you 10 times X, I'm going to charge you nine times X and give you 10 illustrations. Yeah. But that's up to him. I don't know. But that's, yeah, no. I was going to say, <laughs> as far as published art for my stuff, I mean, I have... Stuff that was published in Heat, which Sofwolf got all that art for me. And then uh, my story in X, you asked me, hey, who do you want to do art for your story? I said, hey, Ocelot would be great. And you got Ocelot to do a great picture. And indeed she was. She did, yeah. And I mean, that was out of 
that was out of my capable webbed paws. So take my advice for what you think it's worth. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have that much else to add to it. If you have a further question about it, uh, follow up. You know where to reach us. That's unsheathedpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and in a brief side note to that, we do get private messages on FA sent to the unsheathed account. Um, both of us read them. Mm-hmm. But it's harder to get those into the queue because we have to copy them into an email and then send them to the Gmail account because the Gmail account is where we read all of our letters yeah, from. Yeah, basically it's a pain in the ass and we're lazy. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. send them to the Gmail account and uh, that's your best avenue to getting something right on the air. Yeah, and you know, not that we're going to ignore you if you send it to FA, but the quickest and most reliable way is through Gmail. Um, so we're at about a five-minute, but I think we have time for one quick question here, which mm-hmm. we've talked about a bit. Uh, this one is from Dimitri. And he says, I have a question for both of you. One thing I've noticed about your stories is that even if they aren't about something I easily relate to, I usually end up thinking about them for some time afterward. Is there a method for choosing create or creating thought-provoking stories, or is that achieved more by writing technique, e.g. establishing settings, scenarios, and characters in a way that lets any reader relate? I think it's a little of both. I think that there are certain themes that will be more universally appealing, Conversely, there are themes that might resonate more strongly with maybe only a certain subset of people. But if you write about it in a certain way that, hey, you know, this doesn't apply to me, but it's still compelling and thought-provoking, then I think that's possible too. Like, it's take like, you know, like a, a romantic comedy movie. Like, I can't relate to, you know, what it's like to date a girl, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not going to enjoy a story about that if it's, you know, told in a you know, compelling, witty, funny enough way. True. And thank you, by the way, for saying that our stories are thought-provoking. That's oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Very That's a very great compliment. Yeah, it is. It is. It's something that we both aspire to. Um, I agree to that, although I would say that you relate to a romantic comedy in kind of a way of two people getting together rather than specifically about getting together with a girl. But um, the... I think... Uh, so I do want to add... I. I was chatting with foosball and mentioned this question and his response was good characters. He said, if you have good, easily relatable characters, people will relate to them and care about what they do and will think about it afterwards. Yeah. If the reader can be with a character during their journey and be invested enough to care how it turns out at the end, then the details of the journey itself are less significant as long as the reader is going to care what happens to that person. And I think, um, Kit and I just saw a movie, um, up in the air which is a good example of this. I don't think either of us could really relate in a direct sense to any of the situations in the movie, really. But the character's problems were illustrating kind of a larger question about life and how to live life and how to deal with life. And on that level, the movie really resonated. Um, it's also, Kit and I would both recommend it as a, an excellent movie, one of the best ones we've seen this year. Um, so I think if you... I mean, a lot of the stories that I write are not from my personal experience. I and, hope not. Oh my god! And uh, <laughs> and I'm I'm fairly certain that uh, some of Hirosaki's stories are not from personal experience. So, I think what we do is we kind of select. That was a loaded statement, if I ever heard one. We we kind of come from yeah. Once you've listened to Unsheath Presents Number Two, you'll understand. Um, I think we go at 
we look at things like how would someone deal with this situation, even if we've never dealt with it, if we think it's interesting enough to find out. Um, I'm trying to think of one of the stories I've written, like the superhero story. You know, how do you deal with someone who really wants your affection but doesn't really know you? Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's not, none of us is a superhero. None of us has, you know, weird powers like that. But a lot of us have been in that situation where somebody's kind of presuming on, whether it's in a, presuming on a, a, an acquaintance to, you know, a larger extent than the acquaintanceship would allow. Yeah. Or the the story that comes to my mind that I've written uh, is, you know, my story in X, which is based on, you know, the, thou shalt not bear false witness. I mean, that was a theme that was presented to me, but regardless of whether, you know, the impetus comes from the outside or just a concept that you think up, you know, that's basically a message that's like, hey, like, don't talk shit about people, basically. And then it's like, okay, like, what's the lesson to be learned from that? You know, you know, what sort of story does that lead to? And I go, okay. And I thought about that and go, okay, you know, here's a situation where this is the crux of the story and then you know the story sort of builds off of that but you present it in a compelling way because it's easy to stand there and say you know don't talk shit about people but then what you have to come up with is what's a situation where you would be tempted to do so right and you know that's something that we can all relate to because we've all had situations at one time or another where we just said man i really just i'd really just like to say this you know yeah i can't do that it's not really true it's just kind of what i yeah so I mean, and I thought so. You're saying all... we've all been through junior high and high school. <laughs> well, most of us. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> well, we know someone who's been homeschooled. Oh, okay, I, I I thought you were saying something completely different. Um. So yeah, I mean that's it. Write compelling characters. Pick a good topic and uh, pick something that interests you, and that interest will transfer itself to the reader. Yeah. I agree with that 100%. So we're going to wrap it up. We're going to wish you happy holidays, yep. whatever holiday you celebrate. Yep. And a happy forthcoming new year. And uh, let's hope 2000, I think this will be our last episode of 2009. Our last episode of the decade. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. <clears throat> we've uh, we've very much Booyah. enjoyed doing this. We thought, uh, we weren't sure how long we were going to be able to, keep it going but uh we're and not tired of it yet so. we're, we're 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 getting closer to a half a year we are yeah another month we're past the one-third wow. mark wow another month and um we will be doing a live episode of further confusion we've yes. had that pretty much confirmed uh-huh although apparently we cannot say cock in the audience yeah oh uh token blowjob reference unless we're talking about roosters oh right oh well we won't be able to talk about blowjobs at further confusion unless we couch it in euphemistic terms so we're gonna to have to come up with some kind of code so that everybody knows what we're talking about when we say so if you were gonna put your mouth on someone's peanut no, <laughs> we'll come up with something so send us there there we go there's a, a holiday exercise for our listeners send us a coded phrase we can use to signify a blowjob on our live shows so that we don't get caught by censors um, that's your assignment for the holidays. Cause I'm looking at you. <laughs> you just, I just like <laughs> amused. It's like, wow, we're giving our listeners blowjob homework. 
That's awesome. You know, I would have paid a lot more attention in high school if we'd gotten that kind of homework in high school. <laughs> There's a Otter's, story Otter's, idea right there. I was a little bit broken there. I'm I'm gonna uh Yeah. So make, make that into a compelling story idea. So anyway, send us send us emails, unsheathedpodcast at gmail dot com. You can follow me as Kyle on FA. And where else? Oh, kylegold.livejournal.com. Yep. I'm also Kyle Gold on Twitter. And I occasionally post about projects I'm working on. And if you want to read more about them, read the live journal. Yep. Um, I am also Cam Hirasaki at Live Journal. I'm Cam underscore Hirasaki on FA. And you can also entwiddlate me at, at Cam Hirasaki. My, that's an open invitation. Yeah, it's it's very twiddling. Ah, <laughs> uh, her so. her English. <laughs> <laughs> we knows English good. All right. Well, have a happy holiday. Yeah. Best happy wishes. Be productive. And, uh, be writing and uh, set a set a writing goal for 2010. Yeah, and uh, feel free to bring me a bottle of wine if you run into me at further confusion. Yeah. That'll be that'll be one of our uh, one of our first shows of 2010. We'll talk about our goals for the new year and our resolutions and stuff. To get fancy, give me free booze. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. Good night.